Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us for episode 479 with Ann Grady. Ann is a resilience expert who walks the talk. She has been through some stuff and has some practical strategies to help you with your stuff, big or small, workplace slights and anxiety. She's got a wealth of pro tips for us. So you'll learn one, how the negativity bias hijacks us and how to fix it. Two, quick ways to put your lizard brain back in its place. And three, how to better savor delicious moments to enjoy each workday more. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you'll find it on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F479. Now here is Anne's story. Resilience expert Anne Grady is an internationally recognized speaker and author. She shares humor, humility, refreshing honesty, and practical strategies anyone can use to triumph over adversity and master change. She's a two-time TEDx speaker. She's been featured in Forbes, Harvard Business Review, Inc., Fox Business, Entrepreneur, and more. And she is the author of Strong Enough, Choosing Courage, Resilience, and Triumph. You can learn more at anngradygroup.com. Thanks to Anne for spending some time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Anne. Anne, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Hey, Pete. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, certainly. Well, I'm glad to have you. And we're talking about resilience and gratitude and more. And I want to kick it off by hearing a story from you about a time when you found some resilience and how you found it. Well, you know, resilience is one of those things you you don't find until you realize you need it. And uh, in my case, my journey started with my son, Evan. So. Evan is now 16 years old, but um, when I was pregnant, I knew something wasn't right. He would like kick me so hard, I would just fall to the ground. My doctor joked he was going to be a soccer player. Uh, he just, he cried all day and all night. And um, when he was 18 months old, my husband left. And so I was a single mom. I had just started a consulting career, could not figure out what was wrong. And it just, things continued to escalate. And when he was about three years old, I know this is unbelievable, but he tried to kill me with a pair of scissors and he was on his first antipsychotic by the time he was four. He, by seven, was impatient at his first psychiatric hospitalization uh, in Dallas. By 10, he was hospitalized again. And at that point, I got diagnosed with a tumor in my salivary gland that resulted in the right side of my face being completely paralyzed, which 
two days later, scratched my cornea and was told by my doctor that my face probably wouldn't recover and I needed to have a gold weight implanted into my upper eyelid and a stitch put into my bottom eyelid. And I, I needed to do that before I started six weeks of radiation. Um, so the weekend before my eye surgery, my husband and I went to Vegas. He had recovered from a motorcycle accident. Uh, and we went to Vegas and I fell down a flight of stairs and broke my foot in four places. And then he fell off a ladder, breaking his arm, rib and ribs and hip. So it's just kind of been a constant state of needed resilience. Yes, that is quite a lot. And my face came back, by the way. <laughs> so. Well, yeah, that's with stories. Yes, people wonder how they ended. So that's a lot. Wow. And tell me, how did you find the resilience, the power, the courage, the gratitude, the something to keep on going such that you've been able to get to a good place? You know, it's fascinating. Um, my background, I have a master's degree in organizational communication. And similar to you, I spent you know, 20 years in the organizational development space. So training and professional development, communication, leadership, emotional intelligence, productivity, lots of soft skill type training. Um, and then after everything that happened, I got contacted by a couple of different TEDx organizations wanting me to speak for them. And the topic of resilience was really what they were curious about. They had heard my videos and seen me on YouTube or read articles. And, and so they wanted to hear about my story. And I had never told the story before in terms of resilience. I, I had told it in terms of, you know, I was having opportunities daily to practice what I was teaching because of my situation with my son. And, and once I started digging into the resilience research, in 2014, I realized that there were some things that I was doing naturally to build resilience without even realizing I was doing them. And there were things that I was not doing that were really hindering my ability to build those habits and skills. And so I started pouring over the neuroscience, understand, you know, I've studied the brain since Evan was born, trying to understand how to help him. Uh, and have learned a lot along the way. But then I really got, um, I started geeking out on all of the neuroscience behind resilience. It's incredibly powerful. And it's one of those things that most people think you have to wait until you need it uh, to develop the skills. And it's exactly the opposite. It's These are skills and behaviors and habit, habits that you can proactively cultivate so that you have them when you need them. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the most potent practices there when it comes to building those in advance? Well, things that sound like common sense, but are not common practice. Um, Self-care is huge. And, you know, people kept telling me to take care of myself. And I thought, well, okay, I'm raising, you know, I got remarried when Evan was nine years old. And I was like, okay, so I'll go ahead and take a spa day while I'm raising two children and running a full-time business. And, you know, I don't have time for that. And what I learned is that one, self-care doesn't have to be a spa day. Uh, there are lots of different tools that you can use, but it's also not selfish. It's it's a requirement for resilience. Um, my mom is a flight attendant and um, she started when she was 51. She was a court reporter for 30 years. And when she was 51, she became a flight attendant and she turned 70 this June and she's still doing it. And I'm not supposed to tell you which airline, so we'll just call it Southwest. But uh, she basically does these great announcements. And the one for the oxygen mask is my favorite. And she says, you know, in case of a sudden loss of cabin pressure, please place your mask on and then assist your child. 
And if you're traveling with more than one child, please pick your favorite or the one with the most potential. No. <laughs> but there's a reason, you know, they tell you to put your mask on first. And, um, you know, it's nice to think, well, I'll sleep when I'm dead and I don't have time to take care of me. I've got to take care of everybody else. But life has a way of, of stopping you. Um, gratitude, mindfulness, humor, social connection, making meaning out of challenging events, values, goals. These are all different tools that you can use to build resilience. And you don't need to use every single one all the time, but it's nice to have an arsenal or a toolkit that you can pull from. Mm-hmm. And so then if you're not taking the spa day, but you are doing self-care, what are the things you found that made a world of difference when you did them? Well, so I was diagnosed with depression when I was 19 years old and every doctor, every therapist, everyone I talked with said, you know, Anne, you really have to exercise. And I thought, yeah, that's the last thing I want to do. I, I am not an athletic person. I don't want to exercise. And my grandmother said, you know, Annie, if enough people tell you you're tired, maybe it's time to lay down. She also used to say, if, if you act like an ass, don't be surprised if people try to ride you. But that was my grandmother. Yeah. Um, but, you know, enough people told me to do it. And I was so desperate at one point. I was really having a hard time. It was after Evan's um, first hospitalization and I was really struggling. And then my husband was in a motorcycle accident and I just felt lost. And we moved into a neighborhood that had a, a junior Olympic size pool. And so swimming was always something that I didn't hate. It was the only exercise I didn't hate. Uh, and so I started swimming four days a week. And I noticed such a drastic improvement in my mood. Medications didn't change. The exercise was the only thing that had changed. And so I dug into the research. And, um, you know, I'm an academic at heart. And I, I realized it's not just like lose weight, be healthy. It's literally change your brain. So that was one of the things that just blew my mind. You know, I, I, I was saying all the time, I don't have time to exercise, but I always had time to watch Law and Order. You know, uh-huh. I like I like SBU because I like my crimes, especially heinous. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I really that made a huge difference. Sleep, you know, it's a non-negotiable for me now because I don't do well when I have less than seven, eight hours of sleep. And so I don't care what I have to do to make that happen. I very rarely go without it. Mm-hmm. All right, excellent. So exercise and sleep, indeed, you know, common sense, but often not common practice. And it makes a world of difference, not just in terms of weight, but tell us a little bit about that rewiring of the brain. Well, let me first just really quickly back up and say, you know, self-care could be something as easy as not eating lunch at your desk. It could be as simple as strategically stopping during your day and taking three really deep breaths. It could be giving yourself the same grace and compassion you would give your best friend. You know, it could be not shooting on yourself. We should. I should have done this. I should do this. I should be here. I should be that. And and we should on ourselves all day long. Self-care is going, you know what? I have permission to be human and know I'm enough. So it doesn't have to be the same types of things that we you know, sleep, exercise, diet, all those things are important for sure, but it doesn't have to be those. It can be taking 10 minutes to sit with and snuggle your dogs and drink coffee before looking at social media, you know, so it's really subtle things that you can do that end up making a very big difference. Mm -hmm. And, And so we sort of zoom in to the professional work life, you know, many of the 
slights and offenses and challenges we encounter are not nearly as difficult as many of the things that you tackled. But nonetheless, you know, we can feel threatened, attacked, stressed out, freaking out about things. Can you explain to us a little bit, where does that come from and what should we do about it? So our brain is this phenomenal organ, right? It's gone through three levels of evolution. The first one being just basically snake brain, your reptilian brain. It's heart rate, breathing, respiration, fight or flight. It's just the most primitive part of your brain. The next evolution is tucked in the middle of your brain. It's called your limbic system. And it's got the hippocampus and hypothalamus and amygdala. And so it's got a bunch of different components, but it's kind of the emotional cockpit. It's where all of your emotions are generated. It's where your habits and your memories are stored. And then the newest evolution is the neocortex. It surrounds the outer part of the brain, but specifically the prefrontal cortex right behind your forehead. And that's the part of the brain that differentiates us from the rest of the animal kingdom. We're the only species who can think about the way that we think. It's where creativity and innovation come from. It's where higher level thinking, problem solving, decision making, cause and effect, attention management, emotional regulation, all the hard stuff comes from there. And so there's one, it's understanding that our brain will take anything we repeatedly think, say, or do and convert it into a cognitive shortcut, which is a habit. So it doesn't have to work as hard. It's like going through the express lane. It's just easier. And so if you, for example, if you're listening right now, cross your arms, right? For your listeners, cross your arms. Now cross them in the opposite direction. Probably noticed that the second time was more awkward. And it's because those two things happened from different parts of your brain. The first time you crossed your arms, it came from your limbic system. You've done it <clears throat> a million times when you're cold, when you're angry, whatever. The second time it came from your prefrontal cortex, you had to work at it a little bit more. And if you were to do that all day, every day, or for extended periods of time, and you were to practice that, eventually that would become a habit. You know, over 45% of everything we do every day is a habit. And our brain depends on these cognitive shortcuts to make our life manageable, but it doesn't know which habits are helping us or which habits are hurting us. It just takes however we're repeatedly thinking or behaving and converts it. So that's one is recognizing which habits, you know, are you anxious because you have an anxiety disorder or are you anxious because it's a habit? Are you worrying because there's like something legitimately challenging that you don't know how to navigate or are you worrying because it's a habit, right? So our life becomes this state of habits and we just kind of live on autopilot if we're not careful. The second challenge with the brain is that we have something called a negativity bias and it's a primitive built-in protection mechanism so that if you were being chased by predators, your brain encoded that message very powerfully to keep you protected. Um, and you were you were way more able to notice this saber-toothed tiger charging at you than you are the pretty flower that's standing next to you as you're walking down that path. And it was built as a protection mechanism, but unfortunately, as we've evolved, the brain continues to constantly search for threats. So it overestimates threats, it underestimates opportunities, it magnifies the negative, it's like Velcro, and it diminishes the positive, it's like Teflon. And so we can change the way our brain is wired 
through, Rick Hansen calls it experiential dependent neuroplasticity. And it's basically a fancy term for saying every time you have a positive experience or an experience that you want to encode as deeply as a negative message, you have to ruminate on it just like you would the negative one. We replay the negative stuff over and over and over in our mind, but somebody gives us a compliment and we're like, oh, thanks. It's nothing mm-hmm. rather than sitting in that and truly like feeling the gratitude in that. Or, you know, when you have, I call them delicious moments. So a delicious moment, and we all read these fairy tales growing up or read them to our kids and they all end with, and they lived happily ever after. And then you get a divorce or you lose a a job or you have a sick child or something happens and you feel like, well, great, I have completely failed at this whole thing called adulting without realizing that there's no constant state of happy. It happens in micro moments. It happens in blips. And most of us are so busy focused on finding that constant state of it that we miss those. I call them delicious moments. It's the first sip of coffee in the morning. It's a really great hug. It's a delicious meal. It's a belly laugh where you can't stop. It's, you know, it's a, it's a great podcast interview. It's a, it's just a moment that you want to savor. And I write them down and I put them on, I either take a picture, put it on a cocktail napkin or write it on a sticky note. And I put those all over my office on these huge cork boards. Because every time you find something that makes you feel that moment, you get what's called a dopamine squirt. And I know it sounds dirty, but it's not. (laughs) Um, But every time you have that moment, like for example, yesterday I spoke in Fort Worth and I was speaking for about 3,000 teachers and educators. And at the end of the speech, got an amazing standing ovation. And that was just such a delicious moment for me. I felt like I really made an impact and I felt like I was, I really belonged. I was right where I was supposed to be. So I took out my phone, took a quick picture of the audience, printed it. It goes on my board. And sitting in that and going, all right, how did that feel? Well, I felt pride and I I felt like I was legitimately making a difference and contributing. And I felt like I was paying back all of the teachers who've helped us along the way. And and where did I feel that? Well, I felt it in my stomach and it like my my I got goosebumps and I felt it by the hair on the back of my neck. And simply sitting in that for 20 seconds is enough to embed that into the neural network as powerfully as the negative events that happen and the negative self-doubt and self-talk. But we have to be deliberate about offsetting so much of the negative with bringing in a more focused approach at searching for the positive. And then you start training your brain to find the positive in different situations. So the more you do it, the more you find of it, um, the more time you spend feeling grateful and sitting in that and why and, and how can I communicate that and how can I make somebody's day better because of it? Um, those are all things that if you sit in them for even 20, 30 seconds, you start to recircuit your brain. And, you know, they, they say what, fires together, wires together, the more time you spend in these activities that are going to build resilience, the more likely you are to start your brain down an entirely different path than was intended or where it would go on its own. Well, it really is fascinating when you talk about the negativity bias and how well, we just will naturally ruminate on the bad stuff and then not so much naturally ruminate on the good stuff. And so to really take that time And I think the turn of a phrase, delicious moment is great because, you know, delicious, you know, it's visceral and we know what that feels like, you know, with regard to this bite of 
prime rib on this right. camping trip was exceptional <laughs> and ex- uh, wow. <laughs> I want to camp with you because oh when gosh, I yeah. when I go camping, <laughs> we are not eating prime rib. <laughs> well, they they had this like acorn like smoker delicious. I, I was very impressive what these guys were doing. I was like, I can wrap the potatoes in foil, guys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was my contribution. Uh, <laughs> I can add salt. <laughs> and so, yes. So that moment is there. And then I think it's true in terms of, I don't know, you just, you've made a sale. You get the email and say, yes, yeah. Pete, here's the order. And it was like, great. And then you were like firing off the email reply. Like, okay, well, I'll get back to you on this date with these things. Yeah. As opposed to, no, no, no. The right answer is to just appreciate and relish that for 20 to 30 seconds is all it takes, not say I'm off for the rest of the day. And so that really makes a lot of sense to me. And I like how you're very proactive in terms of, I'm going to think about those prompts, like where did I feel it? How did I feel it? How am I going to capture it? Is it just sort of a, you write it down or you take a photo? And so that's good in there. And so well, now I'm thinking about in a work scenario, I think like a little thing can happen and then it just gets you ruminating going over it, repeat, like, let's just say, okay, hey, you know, you got busy and you weren't quite doing something. Someone else in another department had asked you for maybe once or twice. It wasn't one of your priorities. And then that someone has the audacity to email you again and CC your boss. And then you're like, oh my gosh, this jerk. You know what? I'm going to get to it soon enough. You know, yeah. you really could have called me if it was that urgent and, and I would have handled it. Now my boss thinks I'm some sort of a yokel who doesn't ever, you know, look at his emails or whatever. So your brain can just kind of spin and a small thing. So how do you recommend when you catch yourself in the non-delicious moment, how do you kind of get out of there and start the rewiring? So your brain doesn't know the difference between a saber-toothed tiger or a snarky email. Your brain interprets perceived threats and real threats exactly the same way. And what basically happens is in your limbic system, in your reptilian brain, your, your amygdala basically create cortisol, adrenaline, noradrenaline, norepinephrine, all of these neurochemicals that are draining 20% of the blood from your brain and your heart and placing them into your limbs so that you can fight, freeze, or run away. And even though this is a very primitive neurological response, it has not changed. And so when you are, one is to know what triggers you and to be aware physiologically, psychologically, what has triggered you. The next step of this is, you know, because when that happens, you've been emotionally hijacked. You flip your lid, your ability to think logically flies out the window and our emotional brain, that limbic system works 80,000 times faster than the prefrontal cortex, than the logical system. So one, it's recognizing that you've been hijacked. Uh, Do your palms sweat? Do your shoulders tighten? Do you get nauseous, like where do you, what has happened that lets you know that you have been triggered? Um, Like for some people, it's a visceral, I feel like I was punched in the gut. For other people, it's like my neck just tightens and my hands sweat. Whatever it is for you, it's recognizing it's happening is the first step. Um, The second is letting yourself feel whatever emotion is generated as a result. Most of us don't like to be in uncomfortable emotional states. And so we try to just either not feel anything or we try to fake it and flip it. And that doesn't work. Your emotions are a neurobiological process. You cannot control them. 
it's like you put your hand on a hot stove, you'll bring your hand back very quickly without having time to think, ooh, that's hot, maybe I shouldn't touch it. Your brain does the exact same thing. And so where you do have control of this emotional management process is the thought that is generated as a result of that emotion. So if you imagine step one is the trigger, you know, Bob sent me a second email, copied my boss, really pissed me off. That emotion is anger and hurt and a little bit of fear and embarrassment. You can't change that. The thought process is Bob's a jerk. He tried to intentionally embarrass me, which leads you to a response, most likely defensive, closed off, agitated, which ultimately has a negative outcome. You don't have control over the trigger. You don't have control over the emotion, but you do have control over the way you interpret that situation. So rather than being like, Bob's a jerk, it's, you know, gosh, I wonder if Bob's got something going on personally and he didn't mean to do this. He just copied my boss because he's under the gun on a lot of different competing priorities. Or, or maybe, you know, this is the third time I've missed a deadline and Bob is just getting short with me and he's kind of tired of it. It's, it's how do I interpret that differently? So it shifts my behavior. And this is not easy at all, especially in an organizational setting when someone throws you under the bus or when you've missed a deadline or you didn't meet a deliverable, like whatever it is, it's, it's really paying attention to how your brain hijacks you and then doing some things to get unhijacked. For example, three deep breaths from your abdomen, reset your entire nervous system. It gets your prefrontal cortex back online. So when you are frustrated or angry or you read the email, Ariana Huffington calls it email apnea. When you read an email and stop breathing, which I think we've all done, three really deep breaths from your abdomen will get you back online. Counting backward from 10 or 20 will get you back online because you're having to go to the prefrontal cortex to access higher order thinking. Um, Talking to yourself in third person, strangely enough, has been found to put you back online. So like, hey, Anne, you got this. You'll figure it out unless your name's not Anne and then you should Mm -hmm. replace your name. But it's there are some things that you can do to get unhijacked. You just have to know it's happening first. All right, yes. And so then I'm with you. So you're there, you had the trigger, you had the emotional response. And then I like that notion of sort of feeling it and identifying it in terms of, all right, this may be angry, It made me feel like I don't have my act together when I absolutely have my act together. And so there we are in terms of the breaths or the counting backwards and reclaiming the control there in the prefrontal cortex. But more often than not, here's what happens. More often than not, it's, uh uh-oh, they think I don't have my stuff together. Now I'm insecure. Do I not have my stuff together? How do people think of me? How am I perceived by others? Does my boss now think that I'm not staying on top of things? Am I going to lose my job? What's going to happen? Am I going to be embarrassed? Are they going to, you know, we start down this path of these negative loops and it's very normal, but if you don't catch yourself and stop it and reroute your attention, which is why mindfulness is so incredibly powerful for your brain, then you stay stuck in that habit loop. And it becomes a cognitive shortcut and you just start thinking that way. Mm -hmm. 
So let's talk about mindfulness in terms of specifically the practices that make the difference and then what difference does it make? Sure. You know, I, I used to think mindfulness was the dumbest thing in the world. I ref- like exercise and mindfulness for me were like the devil. <laughs> I was like, I'm not doing either of these things. I don't care how helpful they are. But the research doesn't lie. I mean, you, you know, you find enough research supporting it. Mindfulness, you know, we spend 47% of our time thinking about something other than what we're doing right now. Like if your listeners are driving, they've thought about different signs they've seen. If your listeners are sitting at their desk, they're probably checking an email or two or looking at their phone or checking their Facebook feed at the same time. We have this very difficult time um, controlling our attention. And mindfulness is simply brain training to help you be in control of what you pay attention to. So anytime that you are feeling overwhelmed, it's recognizing that and sitting in that and going, okay, what is this I'm feeling? Let myself feel it and then move on. It could be meditating. Um, and this, you know, I felt like I was playing whack-a-mole with my thoughts. Everybody told me how Zen-like this was supposed to be and it wasn't for me. And so I really started digging in and realized it's not supposed to be. Even Buddhist monks, you know, they call it your monkey brain. Your, your monkey brain is going in all kinds of different directions and every time you catch your monkey running around and you bring it back and focus on your breath, you're training your brain to focus on where you want it to be focused, not where it naturally goes. Like I, I meditate to sleep every single night. And what this does is it expands the gray matter in your brain. So does exercise, uh, yoga does it, um, sleep does it. And the gray matter of your brain is the part of your brain that's responsible for emotional regulation and attention management. And it's the part of your brain damaged by stress. So mindfulness is, it's not touchy, fluffy, feely. It can be, I mean, you can find all kinds of like, oh, say om and, and drink tea and sit here in a full lotus. But for me, it's simply paying attention to where you are when you're there. If you're sitting around the couch at night with your family, are you all watching TV and on your phones? If you're eating dinner, are you paying attention to how the food tastes and feels? Because if you do that, you're sitting in the moment. When you're sitting in traffic, instead of being angry, taking a few deep breaths and going, all right, this is good. I have time to process my day. You know, I can get through that so that when I get home, I can choose the mood I want to be in. It can happen anywhere, anytime. It's just a matter of bringing yourself back to right now. And it is not peaceful and it is not calming. And it, you know, it is not this belief that we have of the perfect yogi. It's really just being deliberate about where you want to bring your attention. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so you mentioned some ways to practice that in everyday life. And if you are hunkering down for meditation, you know, how do you approach that? Well, one, the magical number is nine minutes. If you can meditate consistently for nine minutes a day, you will change your brain. Um, and so I had no idea how to do it. So I downloaded an app. There are, you know, there's Calm, Bootify, Happify, Headspace. There, you know, there's a bunch of different apps. Oh, don't forget Simple Habits. Sponsor. Simple Habits. Hey. Oh, Thanks, okay. guys. Thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love them. I think I've done a, a interview for them as well. They're great. But so it's really, you know, whether it's using an app or whether it's going on YouTube and, and getting a guided meditation, I suggest learning how first being guided by that. Um, 
And sometimes your brain is so unstill, it's so busy that it's really helpful to have a voice outside of you guide that. So, you know, there's power in doing it together. If there's a meditation place that you can go to personally, I I prefer to be alone. Um, It's just really, it's not rocket science. It is so hard, but so easy. (laughs) And it is really just focusing on your breath period. You start by taking a few really deep breaths and just kind of get centered Many programs will tell you to do a body scan, like feel like you can either feel like your head is, you start at the tip of your head and you like feel relaxation down your forehead and your eyes and you relax your nose and your mouth. And like, I view it as this warm blue light is surrounding me and I just like watch it go through my head and neck and shoulders and sternum and stomach and all the way down to my toes And that's one way to stay present because you're focused on your body. And then you sit in silence and just focus on your breath and your mind is going to go everywhere. What are we going to have for dinner? Why does my leg itch? I forgot to pick up the dry cleaning. Crap, I didn't send the email to so-and-so. That's normal. That's what it's supposed to do. But you train yourself to go back to your breath, which is training your brain, training your attention management skills. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Anne, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Uh, no, I think the only other thing I would say is gratitude is really super, super powerful and it's really, really easy. Right now, you can practice this by sending someone a text message, thanking them for something specific, whether it's they helped you on a project or they covered for you or they helped you jump your car when the battery died. doesn't matter what it is. You can take out your phone and just send somebody a text message and literally change your brain and theirs at the same time. It doesn't have to be a long drawn out thing. Simply sending one message a day to somebody in your life will change the way your brain looks at the world. So it's simple, but it requires persistence. Okay. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? One of my favorite quotes is by Ray Wiley Hubbard. Um, He's a singer-songwriter from Texas, and uh, he has a lyric that says, the days that I keep my gratitude higher than my expectations, well, those are good days. And I, I just love that. It's a simple reminder, you know, when our expectations don't match reality, that's when we're angry, frustrated, and disappointed. And if you can control your expectations, you can control your mood. Yeah. That really resonates in terms of, it seems like I most often get angry, frustrated, irritated when I'm in a rush. Like I have an expectation of time that is not being delivered upon. Mm-hmm. Me too. Me too. And how about a favorite study or experiment or a bit of research? The one that just came to mind right now is a, a, when you said that it's a study that was done with monkeys and they, they put these monkeys in a cage. Um, and, and I am not a animal research advocate. But in this particular study, what they did is they put a ladder in the cage with the monkeys. They dangled bananas from the top of the cage. Every time the monkey went up the ladder to get the banana, they sprayed the monkey with water. Ultimately, they ended up replacing all of the monkeys that were originally part of the group. And no monkey would go up the ladder, even though none of the original monkeys were there. 
And it just demonstrates how our corporate culture just feeds on itself. Our habits feed on themselves. We don't even question why we're doing what we're doing. We just do it. And really breaking away from that takes courage, which is my other favorite quote. It's from Marianne Rademacher. You know, she said, courage doesn't always roar. Sometimes courage is the quiet voice at the end of the day saying, I'll try again tomorrow. And sometimes it just takes us stopping and going, am I living my life on purpose or am I just reacting my way through it? Mm -hmm. And have a favorite book? Oh my gosh. There's so many of those too. I think my favorite one growing up was Where the Red Fern Grows. Um, I don't know if you remember that book, but oh yeah, like Big Dan and Little Anne. I just, I absolutely loved that book. Now, um, I really am geeking out over Brene Brown, as I'm sure everybody is. I love Rick Hansen's work around resilience. He has a great book called Hardwiring Happiness. Um, let's see, what else am I reading right now? Oh, Rachel Hollis has a few, you know, a couple of really great books. Um, and something interesting, I'm reading The Upside of Stress by Kelly McGonigal. She has a great TED Talk as well. And she basically aggregated all this research. And one study in particular found it's not the stress that's killing us. It's the way we perceive it. Um, and I found that just incredibly fascinating and powerful. So those are just a few that I'm mm -hmm. reading now. And then I've always got a James Patterson murder mystery novel because everybody's got to have some brain candy. All right. And how about a favorite tool? Something you use to be awesome at your job. So the biggest tool that I use is planning my day. I take time before I ever turn on my computer to think through what my day is going to look like. Or if I do have to turn on my computer to look at the calendar, I resist the urge to go check email and start working out of my inbox. Um, and then I recap my day at the end. What did I accomplish? What can I feel proud of? What did I not get done? When do I have time to do that? So for me, that's important. The other is a concept by Sean Aker. And I also love his work, The Happiness Advantage. And he's got a, a new book out as well. It's basically creating a mental moat around your day. The first 30 minutes and the last 30 minutes of your day are when you have the least cognitive energy. So your brain is most likely to stay in whatever state you put it first thing in the morning. And most of us turn on the news and look at social media and check our email within the first 30 minutes of being awake. And we basically just relinquish control of our entire day. So one of the biggest tools that I use is I sit and have my morning coffee. If I'm at home, I snuggle with my pups. If I'm on the road, I wake up a couple minutes early to sit in the hotel room and just really just be without reading anything, without looking at the world around us. And I start being deliberate about what I let enter into my brain. The other thing is surround yourself with the right people. You know, if you're around constantly negative people, either you're the common denominator or you have to find a way to get around different people. Mm -hmm. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate and gets quoted back to you often? <laughs> um, you find what you look for. You find what you look for. Uh, if you look for all the reasons life is unfair and it's tough and it's an uphill battle, you will find them in spades. But if you start, like I have a sign on my bathroom mirror that says it's written in Sharpie. It says, what do you want to find today? Good. Go look for it. Right. It's you find what you look for. And so make sure you're looking for things on purpose rather than just what your brain naturally will find. Mm -hmm. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? 
Well, there's a couple things you can do. One, if you text the word strength to 555-888 or strength to 555-888, you will get a resilient self-assessment along with a self-care sheet and a poem I wrote while sitting in the Philadelphia airport for nine hours with a couple of vodka sodas. It's actually quite good. Um, and you'll also get a monthly resilience inoculation. You'll get a tip, tool, or strategy regularly. You can join us on social. We have a gratitude challenge right now with our company. Uh, the week of Thanksgiving, we will give $250 toward a charity, charity of your choice or a gift card to uh, the place of your choice. And basically, all you have to do is find us on social media, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook. It's all Ann Grady Group. Uh, and tell us what you're grateful for. And we have a giant gratitude jar we'll be drawing that from. Or you can go to anngradygroup.com and Ann with an E and, and check us out there. Lovely. Lots of free resources and tools as well. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, I would say um, spend the rest of this week, Thursday and Friday or whenever you air this, spend the rest of that week really deliberately looking for five things every day that you would consider a delicious moment. You can do this by putting five pennies in your right-hand pocket, and every time you find one, you move a penny over to your left-hand pocket, and you don't leave the office at the end of the day until you've transferred your pennies. Mm -hmm. Well, Anne, thank you. This has been a treat. I wish you all the luck in the world and many delicious moments. Well, thank you. I wish you the same, and I hope you have a fantastic day. I appreciate you and your audience, and I hope you guys really find lots of delicious moments. Boy, Anne just shared so much powerful stuff. And not the least of it was her, her personal story, showing that she really knows from her life experience what it takes to find resilience and to live it. And, and some of those little tips in terms of savoring those delicious moments because it's not our default to do so. And you know what? I took her advice. I was looking for an email that would come any moment from a sponsor. I thought, okay, this should come. We should have a nice little order here. Come on now. Come on now. Where is it? Where is it? And then it arrived and it actually heard in my mind's ear, whoop, there it is. And I thought, well, you know, I could, you know, hurriedly sort of send them the necessary documents, my W-9 and the schedule and date and da 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 But instead I took Ian's advice and I savored that delicious moment. I played whoop, there it is, and did a little happy dance in the office for a while to celebrate that. And it felt good. It gave a boost to things. And it's just a nice reminder. Sometimes it's the the smallest things like, ooh, that breeze feels just perfect. And I'm just going to stop walking for a moment to enjoy it. Or, hey, I'm hustling. I'm disappointed that Bye Bye Baby did not have the safe to grow chair lock straps that I was seeking, even though I called them and they said they had it. So I had to figure out some sort of alternative solution. So I trucked it over to Home Depot, feeling like muttering like uh, people should know their inventory, uh, being inconvenienced to find some other kind of a bungee cord solution. And then at Home Depot, there's a beautiful display of all of these plants and flowers outside. He's like, you know what? I'm going to take Anne Grady's advice and savor this delicious moment. That is a wide array of beautiful flowers. They smell good. I'm going to appreciate it. Even though I didn't want to be at Home Depot at this hour, I'm here. I'm appreciating the flowers. And we found some cool stuff and got the job done. So all's well that ends well. Thanks to Anne for helping bring some more positivity into my day. I hope you can do the same. 
And if you want to review any of the goods, the show notes, transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F479. And if you have not already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. It's Vanessa Van Edwards. She's been on the list for a while. She has done some deep research into people and behavior and what it takes to captivate and make great first impressions and be influential. Really good stuff. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.